It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to play. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's Wednesday, so that means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. And you are listening to a public affair on volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Well, today is the one-year remembrance of an incredibly somber and uh, sad day in U.S. history. It is one year after the shootings, killings, murders of uh, youth and their teacher at uh, Uvalde, Texas, the elementary school killing. And we thought this would be a perfect time to take a deeper dive into understanding the role of the AR-15, not really just in the killing at Uvalde, but the role that it has played in gun um, and consumer gun consumerism, in mass culture, uh, how it's risen to the level of popularity that it has here in the United States, and the role that it has played in so many mass shootings. And there has been amazing, um, really just incredibly thorough and detailed reporting from the Washington Post. They spent multiple months investigating the history uh, of the AR-15 and interviewing more than 200 people affiliated with the gun industry, lobbyists, users, uh, police officers, victims, um, people from all end of uh, the spectrum involved uh, and impacted and involved in the culture of the AR-15. And we have one of the authors of uh, the many articles, Alex Horton. He's the national security reporter for the Washington Post. And Alex is joining us here today. Hi, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me, Carousel. It's great to have you. So I want to start off with a, a little data um, that you know I, I got from the report. Um, Today, the AR-15 is the best-selling rifle in the United States. About 1 in 20 United States adults, roughly 16 million people, own at least one AR-15. That number just blows my mind. 1 in 20. Can we sort of start there of when you... What made you and your colleagues at the Washington Post want to look at uh, and take a deeper dive into the AR-15? Well, I think I think it's you know in a lot of ways when we talk about gun culture and we talk about gun advocacy and also um, you know the the effort to to rein in uh, gun laws in across the country, um, the AR-15 has for years been the avatar of that fight. It's you know on on the side of um, you know gun enthusiasts, it's sort of like the ultimate thing for the Second Amendment and protectionism of of gun rights. Um, it's the thing that you said is the kind of ancestor to the, you know, uh, colonial musket of, you know, this is the arms we're going to use to pick up if in case tyranny comes back. And then fueled by, you know, mass killings where an AR-15 was involved, uh, gun control advocates have held, you know, held it up as the kind of perfect encapsulation of what the problem is mm-hmm. of a widely available, very easy to use, um, accessorizable rifle that, you know, they say um, for all those reasons contributes to these, these mass killings. So, you know, we took a deep dive into sort of how we got there because, you know, the, the, the weapon has only been around for a few decades. Um, but in, you know, it's really kind of lasting cultural imprint has only been the last Two decades, really. So, uh, you know, we we set out to answer the question: How exactly did we get here? And can we sort of start at the beginning, then a little bit? Can you tell us the history of the AR-15? It started in, um, or it, it started more common use during the Vietnam War. Is that accurate? That's right. And um, to understand how we got the AR-15, um, you have to understand the impact of the AK-47. Um, that the Soviets produced after World War II. 
Okay. Uh, that rifle was uh, an. It's automatic. It is an what is used, uh, what is called an intermediate cartridge, which means it was less powerful than the really big rifles that were sort of like the the uh, the standard in World War II. Um, there was a movement toward another kind of quicker warfare, more mobile warfare, where you're getting closer to the enemy and the big rifles like the M1 Grand that U.S. soldiers used in World War II, you know, those iconic rifles from Saving Private Ryan. Um, there was too right. much power, right? right? There, there needed to be an effort to scale down the weapon to make it fire automatic, but also controllable on automatic fire. Um, so the AK-47 was born. Uh, that left the Pentagon flat-footed in response. They still used, um, you know, big caliber rifles. Uh, the M14 was sort of a compromise, uh, but it shot automatic. But the rifle, the rifle rounds were still very big. So the Pentagon went back to the drawing board and said, "Okay, what do we do?" We need something that matches the AK-47. We need smaller rounds. We need automatic fire. We need detachable magazines that add 20 to 30 round uh, capacity. So this uh, designer in California by the name of Eugene Stoner and his his colleagues at Armalite, they came up with a prototype that matched a lot of those desires, uh, except for the round size. Um, and the Pentagon said, okay, this is on the right track, but you need to scale it down even further. So they started using you know, a smaller round um, for that prototype, which is the 223 uh, or what is now commonly in the military, the 556. So that's the small round used in the, in AR-15 available to civilians now. So that's how, that's how it got started and why it uh, sort of began as a military weapon. Uh, Vietnam was also, you know, a big driver of this, um, you know, they were thinking about an enemy that had the AK-47. They had to keep up with it, um, and a lot of the um, a lot of the excitement in the Pentagon uh, in the early '60s was, you know, v- their Vietnamese um, allies. They're smaller in stature. They had discussions about, you know, their body weight is different than a typical American, and they appreciated the lighter touch of the of the AR-15 compared to the AK-47. Um, so the AR-15 was born of a military weapon, and it was even called that while it was being um, tested by the Pentagon. When it formally rolled out uh, to American troops, it was redesignated the M-16. Um, and around that same time in 1964 is when the AR-15, um, the semi-automatic version, went on sale for civilians. And I want to touch on the, your comment about rounds, about the need to um, have sort of a smaller round talk to us about what does that mean for those of us i i have i have never held a gun i have never fought a gun um i know people that are hunters i have been around people when they were hunting and shooting but i have never done it myself so i know a little but that's the danger i am maybe know so so little that i don't really know what i'm talking about but i think i understand the role that a, a round plays but can you help me understand and our listeners understand how important it was to what it means to have sort of a smaller and more aerodynamic round. Sure. So when you, when you think in terms of firearms, um, it's, it's best to think about in terms of power, not necessarily the power of the weapon, but power of the rounds and the size mm-hmm. of them. You know, I, I think a lot of people kind of inaccurately describe a high powered rifle or whatever in at least me, guessing okay well what's the is there even such a thing like have you ever heard of a low-powered rifle um (laughs) so it's it's all about the ammunition and when you think of a pistol the pistol is on the lower end of being able to fire a powerful round you know they're smaller it's a weapon that can fit in the palm of your hand um so those rounds typically are the smallest you can fire from uh, a firearm then you move on to something like uh an ar-15 uh, which is called an intermediate cartridge, and that means it's more more powerful than a pistol cartridge, but not something like a hunting rifle that uses big rounds, a lot of gunpowder to project that uh, to project that round. Um, so, why it was important for the Pentagon to pursue this is the M1 Garand used in World War II and its replacement, the uh, the M14. The rounds were very heavy, very powerful. They were fire. They were capable of traveling further than what engagements in World War II 
typically had. So mm. they say, okay, too much power. We don't need to, we don't need to shoot someone 500 yards away. We need to be able to shoot an enemy that's like 50 yards away or 200 yards away. So when it comes to uh, the power question, um, there's also being able to control the weapon. Um, so there's not as much recoil if there's an intermediate smaller round, um, but also you can carry more. So an infantryman carrying 30 rounds of uh, ammunition that would go either go into an AR-15 or an M-16 is a lot lighter than uh, 30 rounds for the ammunition for an AK-47, for instance. Mm-hmm. And in the military, so I served in the army myself, and there's there's a saying that says uh, ounces equal pounds and pounds equal pain. And you want to be able to carry as much as you can in water, ammunition, food, other essentials. So actually the ammunition plays a very important role in that. And that's why there is a sort of concept of let's get more rounds for automatic rifles that we can use. Um, so we have more rounds we can fire and it's a lighter load on our guys. Um, but that has also come into play in, in some of these mass killings that uh, when an AR 15 or a similar rifle is used, um, some of these shooters are carrying multiple magazines right. uh, because that, that is part of the appeal that you could have a 30 round magazine in most States uh, with no, restrictions um and that is something you would carry into uh into the battle with an m4 um which is pretty much the civilian the military equivalent of the ar-15 um the, the same kind of magazines and same kind of ability to carry them um is essentially identical when you are a mass shooter intent on harm well so i like hearing the history and understanding when you're thinking it from a military combat a war perspective you're thinking how can i you know get the most bang for my buck the 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 lightest weapon that can allow our 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 soldiers to you know carry it further carry as much um ammunition and bullets as possible as many rounds as possible be more successful it does so all of these things that go into thinking about war it makes sense how this weapon was created so with that backdrop you start your reporting talking about how initially this wasn't something that people thought would then translate to someone at home wanting one and want needing it for personal ownership. Why was that hesitation there initially where it, it wasn't an immediate thought of not only is this great in the, at the, um, on the um, war site, but this is something that people want at home. No, no one made that leap. Some people did make that leap, um, but I don't think it was sticking for a while. Um, so, you know, walk into any gun store in Wisconsin and you'll see AR-15s, you know, on the shelf. They're yes. completely saturated, right? Um, that that has not always been the case. So you got to take yourself back to 1964 when it was first on sale. And, you know, gun culture was very much centered on hunting and being outdoors. Uh, very tradition mindset uh, for gun owners, um, and they thought of weapons and rifles as what their dads carried. So bolt action, older, powerful guns, wood finish, um, you know, quality iron and metal. Um, and then here comes this AR-15 for the civilian market, and it's aluminum, and it's plastic, and it's black, and it shoots a small round. It's like everything that's like gun owners cherished about firearms, like their, the feel and their durability um, and their history was completely upturned with the AR-15. So there wasn't a whole lot of success uh, from Colt, who at the time was the only manufacturer of it. Um, they were selling it mostly as like a compliment to gun owners for carrying, you know, hunting rifles and shotguns. But what's interesting is there was an there was a magazine article, sort of like a review in Popular Science in 1965, you know, soon after the release. And the the title of that says, now you can own a hot combat rifle for sport. Um, So that was what's interesting to me is um, immediately they were connecting the M16s uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, imprint on the battlefields in Vietnam to the AR-15 in a way I think a lot of gun advocates have distanced themselves from. Like they understood that the connective tissue was 
very, very, very close between them. And now when you, there's a criticism from gun control advocates who describe an AR-15 as a quote weapon of war, right? Mm -hmm. And the response from gun advocates is the AR-15 and the rifles that American service members carry couldn't be more distinct. One's automatic, one is not. Therefore, it's night and day. When actually the earliest advertising and the earliest discussion of the AR-15 made very clear the connection between the two in a way I think gun control advocates and you know gun lobbyists and manufacturers have sought to create daylight when before there was absolutely no daylight. I really appreciate sort of thinking about that history, especially in the sense that, you know, I remember when I was younger and and when people were going hunting and holding guns, it was sort of like the heft of it, you know, like here I am, I'm holding this gun. It's like substantial and real and I'm going out to do something. And it had this like weight figuratively and literally to it of when you were going out hunting and talk to us a little bit more about that culture shift and how it went from, you know, this isn't your dad's gun anymore. And it wasn't the concept of, you know, we're going to kill someone and going out for a hunt. Uh, I'm sorry, going to kill animals when you're going hunting, but it, it turned more into a different, a, a different feel. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, Colt and its advertisers, um, when they, had the duty to go out and advertise it. They had to fall back on the gun control, the gun kind of culture at the time, which was hunting in outdoors. And this, this argument that the AR-15 is something that's good for hunting. Um, I think, I think is not really credible. Um, mm -hmm. It's something that has been a more discussion in recent years. Uh, there are models that have a, a heftier round, you know, closer to a typical hunting round um, that you could make the argument, but why you would need, you know, 20 rounds to, to kill a deer is, is beyond me. Um, and the round travels so fast that, you know, you might just fill it with holes rather than bring it down. Um, so there is this sort of um, uh, cognitive dissonance when we talk about the Air 15s role when it comes to being a hunter's, you know, rifle. Um, so that, that was something that kind of came about, I, I think out of necessity because Colt needed to fall back on, what do gun owners care about right now? And back then that was hunting and being outdoors. And then the seventies and eighties happened. Yeah. And, Talk you know, to us about that increase. shift. What's that? Talk to us about that sort of shift where it went from yeah. not just a hunting culture and guns were not just about hunting. Right. So the, the so here come the seventies and eighties and, and, and a little bit into the nineties when, um, there was, you know, the rising crime had a, a lot of people, people concerned about their own safety. There was doubt about the police being able to protect people. Um, and there was also a corresponding um, shift in gun laws where, um, you know, a lot of States made it more uh, made it easier to uh, get gun permits or to have permitless carry, that sort of thing that was starting to sort of shift in favor of, of gun rights activists um, to make it more easier not only to buy guns, but to have them in different places outside your home. So the gun culture, and this has kind of been um, strengthened by expert studies on this, that in this period is when gun culture shifted from hunting and recreation to more about personal defense. Um, so the idea that you would keep a gun in your car or your truck or in your home specifically with the intent of protecting your family or yourself was the motivation driving gun culture um, in this period that sort of walked into the nineties. So that, that shifted to more, okay, now I need a weapon, not just to shoot a deer in the woods from far away with a single shot, but now I need a weapon that can protect myself. Um, and I need to have assurance that it'll do its job. So you know, pistols with higher capacity, um, you know, bigger rounds and pistols like a 40 caliber um, and something like the AR-15 um, with a higher capacity uh, to shoot more rounds in a semi-automatic way was sort of becoming in vogue for for people to, to grasp on. And I think sort of like another kind of smaller but third wave happened 
um, not only after the assault weapons ban sunsetted in 2004, which allowed people to buy AR-15s again uh, in many states, um, but the Iraq and Afghanistan wars had this impact of, you know, the similar military weapon, the M4, was ubiquitous in news coverage. Um, it's what all the cool guys carry in movies like Lone Survivor um, and American Sniper, you know, not the sniper rifles, but the actual um, M4 rifles they carry. Um, so that was sort of like a second wave of interest of the tactical gun movement um, that drove a lot of interest in the AR-15 market. And, and we see all those things converging in around 2008 when the Call of Duty franchise took off um, with its modern warfare setting. Guns were more available and the guns were you know, a lot of cool guy imagery coming out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. All that sort of happened in um, the late aughts of the 2000s. We're talking right now with Alex Horton. He's the national security reporter for the Washington Post and was part of a team that wrote a series of articles regarding uh, the AR-15. Um, we want to get your thoughts. What do you think about the AR-15? Are you a hunter? Are you someone that has used the AR-15? Are you someone that's owned an AR-15? Are you someone that has been impacted by uh, AR-15 and shootings in America? Give us a call if you'd like to join the conversation. We would love to hear from you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. We have Mary Jo ready to take your uh, calls uh, out in the um, front front of the uh, office. We have Jade and Jay in the studio. They can patch you through um, to join us live on the air, or you can also pass a message on to them if you want to um, not join us live on the air, but um, get a message to me and Alex. We're happy to do that too at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. So Alex, tell us a little bit about, so meanwhile, the role that mass marketing played and um, in in cultivating this. You talked a little bit about the Call of Duty and the you know, media that existed at that time. And how did that work with the marketing and of, of the AR-15? Yeah. I mean, all of it really converged, um, you know, at that point. And I think after the 2004 ban was sunsetted, um, you know, there was this back to the drawing board for gun makers. They said, okay, well, here's this thing that wasn't really terribly popular before, but times have changed. We're on the other side of the ban the last time someone could walk into many gun stores in the U.S. Uh, and buy an AR-15 was 1994. Um, you know, the the, the post-9-11 wars had been raging for three years um, since then. Um, so I think there was a realization that maybe this is something that, that the gun uh, buyers and gun makers could get behind. Um, so that's when a lot of the, the companies... Uh, started rolling out their own version. And it's important to remember that Colt had the patent and the trademark for the AR-15. Um, okay. Some of those rights expired in 1977. So the AR-15 now is sort of like a, a term for like a family of weapons that trace back to the original design. Um, so it's more, it's, it's, it's like saying a, like a sedan versus, you know, a Ford Taurus. Gotcha. For example. So that there's many AR-15s that you can buy that are made or air 15 style weapons. That's, that's right. That's okay. why we use the style because uh, an actual true blue air 15 is made by Colt. Okay. Um, but, but since they last, they lost the patent and that expired in the seventies, uh, pretty much any gun maker can, can design their own version based on that original design, um, which is why it's sort of like a, it's sort of like a cotton swab, right? There's Q-tip and then there's all the other ones that look exactly like it. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's why that happened. So that I think is part of it that anyone can make it that it may, meant anyone can um, have a cheap version. They can have an expensive version. There's a, there's a, um, there's a, a price point for just about everyone who wants to buy one. Um, I think that contributed to that, but there was this very deliberate strategy to sell this as something new, um, sort of like the forbidden fruit of the last decade, starting in 2004 um, that I think drew it. And, and one of the, the gun lobby folks in our article said something to the effect of, you know, uh, people buy the AR-15 because it's cool, the same way people buy a Corvette. Um, and that's that's uh, uh, um, uh, an effect of marketing. 
Um, that's an effect of, you know, the popular culture images of it. Um, all that is sort of like goes into a blender to increase the mass appeal of the weapon. And, you know, by 2008, when Obama was elected um, and uh, the NRA was drumming up fears of a, uh, you know, a nationwide gun grabbing ban, um, you know, the sales just absolutely went through the roof that year. It seems like there's sort of these two things that were that were on parallel tracks and right then then converged at the idea of one right post 9-11. Uh, you can be like them, arm yourself, protect yourself. Now is the time, you know, a, a, it's sort of like a call to arms for all people to pr- protect yourself and your homes and and be like us, be like the police officers and the people in call um, call of duty. But also at the same time, once Obama was elected, the conversation of, and also remember, you could lose this any second now. They're, you know, trying to take the guns out of your hands. So don't forget to go out and buy it and to let them know you're buying it. It was almost like this political act of protest, of defiance against the Obama administration and against people that wanted to, you know, put the assault weapons ban back into place. Yeah, that that's right. And that's that's about when it started to become, you know, not just a weapon, but a symbol uh, for both ends, particularly after Sandy Hook in, in 2012. Uh, you know, Obama uh, was in his was about to begin his second term. Right. So, you know, um, there was nothing. It, it was, you know, politically easier in the mind of Republicans for him to do something like another ban. Um, so that was another kind of watershed moment of of looking at the AR-15 as a, a as a rallying cry for for gun lobbyists and uh, advocates to to uh, protect Second Amendment rights, um, and that that symbolism has only increased, mm-hmm. um, particularly after you know Parkland, uh, after Uvalde, which you know was a year ago today, and also um, you know the gunman used uh, an AR-15 style rifle. So um, all of these kind of moments in time are those become those tug of war periods of mass shooting happens. There's this fierce debate, nothing happens, but you know, that what we do know is after all these moments, Obama's election and reelection, big, big mass shootings like Sandy hook, um, the sales spike every time because um, you know, the, the, the lobbyists are very effective in saying, all right, this is the moment that we've told you about. It's coming. You better get your gun because the feds are coming. And of course, it never happens. But that's sort of been the very reliable message throughout the last, um, you know, decade or two: is the gun ban's coming just around the corner. You better rally up. And talk to me about then bring us into sort of the 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 current conversation about the impact of mass shootings and the role that AR-15s have played. Um, that was the weapon that was used in Uvalde, but that was the weapon. This isn't just an Uvalde conversation. That's the weapon that disproportionately is used, you know, in uh, mass shootings across the United States. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have data from, um, you know, 10 of the 17 deadliest shootings since 2012 have involved AR-15s. Um, it's it's important too to kind of disentangle gun violence and mass shootings too, because you know gun violence, whether it's murders, um, uh, homicide, self defense. Um, when you when an American kills another person with a gun, the majority of those deaths are from handguns, mm-hmm. um, and a very a, a very you know a, a minority of those of those deaths are with rifles. However. When it comes to mass killings, mass um, the 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 death the death toll and the AR-15 and other semi-automatic rifles has appears to have this relationship to where it's not just a killing that's taking place, but it's a it's a it's a shooting with a higher death toll than others. And there's this you know growing evidence that it's it's the weapon. Well, um, that's doing that. I really appreciate that point, and right that that's a tangent in a conversation for another day. But an important point to to make is that right the the most way that you know shootings happen of other people in America is through handguns, um, and that's more 
right intimate uh, domestic violence or or people that that know each other usually, although it, it doesn't always have to be. But right, the different conversation that we're having about mass shootings and how you know that that gets a different conversation in America and and a, sometimes appropriately and sometimes inappropriately to focus all of it on a. Um, AR-15s and automatic weapons. Have you gotten any response um, from sometimes the gun gun lobbies or other entities saying if you really cared about gun shootings, you wouldn't be focusing on the AR-15? Yeah, I think that's part of the strategy. And I want to note that, you know, you had mentioned automatic weapons, which are very heavily heavily regulated. um, And I I can't recall any time an automatic weapon was Mm. used in a mass killing. So these are all, when it comes to, you know, the Las Vegas shooting with with bump stocks um, and other killings, they're, they're all semi-automatic. Semi-automatic. Uh, so an important distinction there. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think that the the response from you know the the gun advocate side is, you know, the sort of the the you know pretty much the left and progressives and gun control advocates have a myopic view of the AR-15 and um, they say, well, look at the data; it's it's a minority of deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you, you have to ask yourself what what are we really talking about here? Are we are we talking about protecting people out in public, or are we talking about, like as you said, domestic violence, gang violence, um, you know, uh, robberies, that sort of thing, suicides? Those are those are all done predominantly with with pistols. So it's it's a very, as you pointed out, it's a it's it's not up in a lot of things, and of course, politics um, kind of overshadows it all. So that's why I think it, there's a constant gridlock here and an impasse because uh, both sides are very much talking past each other. We have a call coming in from Birkin. Birkin, thanks for waiting a few minutes here. You had some thoughts about government overreach um, and and maybe yeah, I, in the role that they play. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so I, I was noticing uh, some differences in the lockdown procedures between the Australian government and the United States government and noticing the fact that uh, the United States citizens are more heavily armed. Uh, the Australian citizens don't have any weapons, more or less, to my knowledge. Um, so I'm just wondering if that played an impact um, in terms of the COVID lockdowns. Uh, with respect oh. to the COVID situation, uh, Twitter and the United States government were colluding to uh, change the narrative on the effectiveness of vac- vaccines and mm. the dangerousness of the virus. So uh, I'm just wondering if the fact that the United States citizenry was more well-armed played enough, uh, had a role on uh, the government's response in that situation. Uh, thanks for your question, Bergen. I'm not, I, I don't know if Alex would be able to answer that. And it's a little bit of a tangent. I don't know, Alex, if, if, if you have any thoughts on that or m- more even more broadly of the, the sort of role that uh, armed individuals have in maybe intimidating the government or, having the government make decisions based on it? Uh, that's a bit outside of my expertise. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a tangent. Um, thanks for your question, Birkin. Um, maybe for another day we can we can talk about that because I definitely think that there have been, you know, allegations and we've talked on this show about um, First Amendment rights versus Second Amendment rights and the roles that people with weapons can play in intimidating people. So maybe Birkin, you sh- we can um, point you in the direction of that conversation that we had actually a um, month or so ago about the First Amendment versus the Second Amendment. All right, Alex, let's get back to you a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk to you about then what conversations do you hear on Capitol Hill about regulating um, AR-15s? It, it feels on some level like... It should be a simple thing. We just want to regulate semi-automatic weapons is what's one side saying. And then the other side is saying, what is what is their response to that? Is that regulating these weapons is not a response, doesn't address the violence? I mean, I think there's certainly all flavors to that discussion. I think, I think the general sense is, you know, the push and pull is, you know, uh, weapons such as the AR-15 uh, don't have a place in American society. Uh, certainly, the the ubiquity of it um, is what the uh, you know progressives on the left would say, and then you know the right are saying you know any sort of infringement on that violates the Second Amendment. That um, you know this the Second Amendment was 
designed, they say anyway, their interpretation is, you know, to have the same weapons as the U.S. military. Um, back then that meant muskets, and now mm-hmm. the American military has M4s. Therefore, we need the same thing. Um, so that's sort of like the, the push and pull. So um, I, I think there's, you know, depending on who you are and, and um, you know, your wing of either side of the aisle um, is how far you go down. I, I, I think there is, you know, on both sides, th- this effort to to corral gun violence to, uh, to a certain extent. Um, but I think for Republicans, there, there's a delicate balance. And, you know, and, and I remember this from when, uh, you know, Veterans Affairs, the Department of Veterans Affairs has data that says, you know, veterans compared to non-veterans um, take their lives with firearms more often um, because they're familiar with weapons. They're more likely to own them. Um, so there has been this sort of, um, this push to talk more openly about how you store your guns, if you can leave them with the neighbor, if you're, if you have some sort of, uh, you know, mental health emergency and it's, it's like a third rail to talk about this among the conservative side of the aisle, because that's the government coming for your guns, right? Like the kind of the old argument. So a lot of it's so kind of wrapped up that, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of movement. I gotta, I gotta be honest that I don't, I don't really see any kind of advance that doesn't come in the form of executive orders or, um, you know, some ATF policies, for example, um, you know, trying to curb the availability of um, AR-15 pistols, which, you know, smaller versions of the AR-15 that are legally classified as a pistol. Stuff like that is, I think, how how it usually goes rather than big bans and big, big laws. Tell us about, um, we had a, uh, a caller, a question uh, from Nancy about um, what could be um, some of the appropriate uses um, f- for AR-15s. And can you talk to us about that, of some of the explanations from people? What was great was um, if you check out the um, reporting that you and your colleagues have done, there are some great interviews with people who own AR-15s talking about why they own AR-15s. Can you um, summarize some of that and help us understand what what gun gun owners are saying. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think when it comes to wildlife, you know, you have to kind of draw the distinction between hunting and protecting from it. You know, um, you know, when it comes to hunting, you know, a very very important foundation for hunters, at least they should have, um, is humanely killing an animal um, and not injuring it unnecessarily. Um, that's why, you know, rounds are a little bit bigger. They're, they're meant to use force to kill an animal like a deer, uh, you know, quickly. Um, but, you know, say there's, you live in a place where there's, uh, wolves or coyotes, either a danger to you or a danger to your livestock or your pets. Um, you know, something like an AR-15 could be helpful because you aren't trying to humanely kill something. You're trying to defend your property. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you're, your animals or your loved ones. So, and those animals usually travel in packs. So uh, something like a hunting rifle may not be the right tool for that. So that that's one example of, of something where, you know, it's a very reasonable thing to, to use. And also we are a, like it or not, the U S is a gun culture mm-hmm. going back to, you know, before there was even a country here, um, you know, manifest destiny, individualism, you know, uh, going west out into the wilderness to tame it. That's all part of the uh, American psyche um, and extracting the kind of firearms from that history is impossible. Um, So at one level, we just have to say, you know, what what do we want them for? And, you know, right now, a lot of people use AR-15s as recreation um, and a lot of people find them fun. And, you know, the the AR-15 is something where, you know, that it's, it's very easy to learn. Um, there's a ton of accessories that you can make it to your liking. You can make it any color you want. You can put anything on it from scopes to bipods to flashlights. Um, you know, it's it, the ammo, you know, sometimes it's cheap and sometimes it's, it's expensive. Um, mm-hmm. There's little recoil. So, you know, younger people can get involved. People with disabilities, if they like shooting, uh, it's easier to handle than other kinds of rifles. Um, there's a whole lot of, appeal to it that's more than just this is what the military uses or this is what uh, mass shooters use it's it's a gun that a lot of people just like to shoot they like to go to the range and 
shoot 200 rounds and go home. Uh, that's that's certainly part of the appeal. Well, and I also appreciated in your reporting where you talked about there was appeal to um, men on this intentional, you know, of, you know, more manly. This is what the men use. This is what we use in, you know, in the military. But then there is an intentional um, appeal to women of it's easier to use. It's lighter. Um, all can you talk a little bit about that and and the um intentional marketing towards women yeah i th- i think um you know certainly in the last decade um you know gunmakers were looking at their buyers and you know that there's only so many they can sell right um going after the traditional market of of men um so there was this sort of deliberate um effort to to center marketing around women um you know women are a growing um consumer base for firearms and traditionally um you know going back several years now that the sort of strategy was to um appeal to women through you know small self-defense guns like you know think of like the tiny revolver in your purse right mm-hmm. that was sort of like the stereotypical thing that um gun makers were doing you know a lot of the guns were pink you know sort of like these really retrograde ideas of what women care about of course. um and in the last few years, it's it's they've moved more to you know AR-15s and rifles uh, as something um, that they could also get into. Um, and a lot of it was interesting is I talked to some um, experts who are um, do a lot of research at the intersection of guns and marketing, um, and a lot of the the imagery and the subtext of it is defending the family which also is true for men but like there's sort of matriarchal like protect the flock sort of feeling that you know i would say probably is a a a strong thread for conservative women and 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 women who already have a cultural affinity for guns that is sort of already there and it's like tapping into that even further um so there is that subtext there that that gun makers and and marketers use to their advantage, um, you know, particularly in the a few recent years. One mm-hmm. of the experts said, you know, walking the NRA convention floors, you know, they noticed this sort of uptick in um, marketing, not just for women, but AR-15 and women in particular. Interesting. So, Alex, I want to pivot a little bit to then an understanding. This is so helpful to understand the history, the appeal, you know, how AR-15s became something that was so part of the culture wars and so important to gun owners. I want to sort of shift the conversation to the other side of the impact of AR-15 bullets. And there's a whole, you know, visual and written, you know, diagram in uh, the Washington Post that you were part of that talks about the impact of these bullets of how it's harder to survive being shot by them, the, the destructive nature. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how has that been part of the conversations? Yeah, I see it on our, our chat here that someone had a comment or yes. a question about hunting and military rounds. And I'll say really quick, yeah, it's not a one for one, um, you know, a, a hunting rifle that you use and a sniper rifle used by the military i mean they use almost in many cases the same gun um and very similar ammunition i mean not to get too kind of gun nerdy here but like the the psi and these weapons are different so the pressure coming out of the barrel is different for military weapons typically higher and that's usually um a a key difference but you know it's almost the the, there are there are more similarities and differences when it comes to um the ar-15 and the m4 and the ammunition that is common with both of those. Um, but, you know, little differences on the margins um, may, do make differences. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah. So um, why the AR-15 um, and its rounds, which is, you know, a two-two-three, is sort of the, the common round for it. It's small. Um, it does have the DNA of the Pentagon's desire back then in the 60s of what they called small caliber high velocity and sort of like the thinking was um if you have a round traveling fast with a lot of velocity a lot of energy packed in there um it could cause significant wounds um that you know maybe a a bigger more powerful round will um you know put that energy in your body when it goes through it but 
the just like the inherent quickness of a smaller round can leave bigger wound channels in your body. Uh, that was sort of the, the thinking of of that added benefit of you know what we talked about before of like the rounds are smaller, they're easier to carry, mm-hmm. you can carry more of them. Um, so that is not unique to the AR-15's common round to two, two, three. That's not something that only the AR-15 and weapons like it um, have a monopoly on, you know, har- doing significant harm to a human body. Um, we did compare it to pistols because it's like, well, okay, pistols do a lot of damage and they're, they're the, um, they're the driver of most gun deaths. So we said, okay, what, what is the, the effect, the ballistic effect of getting shot with a pistol round versus an AR-15 round? Right. And the difference is, you know, the AR-15 round is, is smaller, but traveling about three times faster. Um, so that has its own physical characteristics of, of wrecking the body and tumbling through it, um, you know, damaging blood vessels, um, you know, uh, erupting organs, tearing through tissues, hitting bone, and then, you know, getting somewhere else. Um, you know, it's common for someone to be shot, say, in the armpit of with, with an AR-15 round, and then it goes out your right leg, right? Because it travels all through your body when other weapons, you know, it's that terrifying. move slower. Okay. Maybe they stay in your body. Maybe they don't create additional wounds. Um, but in this particular case, that's something that happens because that 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 round becomes so unstable in your in your body that it can do all kinds of stuff that something like a pistol round can't do. Um, so that that's the distinction. Not to com- not to say the AR-15 and the 223 round has sort of like this unique destructive ability compared to other rifles because it doesn't. But when you compare it to pistols, which are much more common. Um, and used in more killings, the the effect is not the same thing just because there are two guns. In fact, the way I explain it to to layman people is, I'd rather someone shoot me with a nine millimeter from fifteen feet away than someone with an AR fifteen one hundred and fifty meters away. I would, if I had to to take the option, I would take the pistol from fifteen feet away, hmm. um, just because that velocity is still screaming at you from from 150 yards. Um, I'll, I, I would take that any day. And how, so do you see then any, uh, based on your conversations and interviews with, as we said, more than 200 people, do you see any room for then some common ground? I mean, as I'm listening to you talk and, you know, trying to, you know, be in the moment and hear what you're saying, I appreciate that, there are gun owners that prefer the AR-15 for all the reasons that we've talked about. I also am, over, as the parent of two teenage daughters, am overwhelmed and terrified at the thought of the impact of these um, weapons that they have, the role they have played in mass shootings. Even if that's um, being sensationalized, as we talked about, because of you know, in general, the most people don't die from mass shootings, but still the impact is so devastating. Do you see any understanding when you were talking from people with people of the perspective on the other side and, and room for conversation? No. Hmm. I don't, because I, th- I think some of it is wrapped up in politics too, right? Like, um, and that, I think that's, and that's true of so many things, right? Like, uh, you know, trans rights, economics, um, you know, foreign policy, politics has infected so many things that um, it has really created wedges to where that common ground could be. So I, I'm, I'm sort of a realist when it comes to this and sort of, mm-hmm. a, you know, uh, I'm just kind of seeing how things go uh, and see how intractable everyone is on this issue. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't see a, a melding of the minds. I don't see a compromise. I don't see a, a kumbaya moment where everyone finds uh, a, a way to move forward from this. Um, I, I think because of that, the history of our our country, because of um, you know the kind of ingrained cultural tattooing of the American soul about guns and and individualism and rights um, and how saturated we are in them. There's more guns in the United States than people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't see, I don't see this coming back. 
Alex, in our in our final moments here, I know that there have been um, recent study, uh, recent polls that were released. There was a, a Fox poll um, that sort of overwhelmingly had um, they worked. Uh, I'm sorry, it was the Associated Press from poll from 2022 and a Fox poll most recently um, overwhelmingly had. Americans in favor of some level of gun regulation. It was just sort of a differentiation of what that gun regulation is. Do you see room for conversations about things beyond semi-automatic weapons? Yeah, I mean, I think there could be stuff on the margins, right? Like, I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of gun advocates are sort of, you know, uh, some of them, not all of them, but they're there is like that movement towards, you know, we have to have, uh, you know, red flag laws, you know, mental health, um, you know, uh, some sort of kind of check with systems that there's, you know, the military, for instance, reports to the FBI, if, if any service member is, um, had a violent domestic violence, uh, domestic violence charge that they were guilty of, they reported to the FBI to make sure that they're barred from, from uh, buying guns, which in the case of Devin Kelly and Sutherland Springs uh, did not work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are these kind of mechanisms already in place. And, you know, maybe I think there is a, for, for gun right folks, there is a willingness to, to explore the sort of smaller stuff. Right. But like these, these sort of like big laws, like a, like an assault weapons ban, another one, you know, I, I don't, I don't really see that happening, but kind of like the smaller, maybe state led stuff. I think there, there is some promise there. And do you see the popularity of the AR 15 changing anytime soon? Is there a point where it could have reached mass, you know, consumption and that something else takes its place? Yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, it's like, how many more can they sell? You know, at what point are you just replacing, uh, you know, ARs that you already bought? Um, I I did talk to one person who owns sort of like a gun accessory person. And he he says, you know, he sees the next frontier as sort of like um, the old West style guns of like the rifle that has like the breech loader on, on the bottom. Like you, maybe you've seen it from like old Westerns where you kind of, your hand fits in the slot and you like kind of cock it and come back Mm -hmm. you might know what i'm talking about but like guns like that um or like marksmanship rifles that you know going back to the bigger round that can shoot further um he saw that as sort of like the next frontier that people are interested in um you know they're they're they're, they're, yeah we have to leave it there alex yeah we're out of time but that's a really that's just really interesting to sort of pay attention to what the future holds well it's been wonderful talking with you thank you so much for joining us today alex horton national security reporter for the washington post thanks for your reporting and for your time today alex yeah happy to join you and thanks everyone for listening um you are listening to wort 89.9 fm madison we'll see you again next week thanks everybody Media distorted. We come and listen and support it. We come and never be recorded with information that would never.